Unlikely Pilgrims, a podcast hosted by historians Dan Spanger and Mark Draper, where we discuss issues facing the church today in the area of politics, culture, education, the arts, from a historical bent to help the citizens of the City of God negotiate life in the City of Man, where we seek to create a safe space to have difficult conversations. If you like what you hear, you can follow us and read our blog at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. You can follow us on Twitter or Facebook, and you can also email us at unlikelypilgrims at gmail.com. Dr. Spanger, so this intro for our third and final guest in this series, uh, Dr. Tim Padgett, mm-hmm. uh, author of a book, uh, Dual Citizens. Uh, he and I, of course, are working on a project together. Um, how would you kind of prepare our listeners for thinking, listening to this podcast? Yeah, I, I think the contrast we've gotten here is really neat because mm-hmm. from the two people on the street, and it's not that Tim's not, he's very aware. I think he's got a fairly good sense of how these things matter to people on the street, but he's obviously thinking about the intellectual implications. If you start thinking this way, what happens to you? And I don't think he's unaware that there aren't more complexities involved in it. But I think as you hear him now, just just listen to the stark transition we've had from people grappling with it on the street to someone who's now taking time to stand back and go, wait, wait a minute. We start dealing with these ideas, there's implications for how you start to think, and we can't cut those. Um, I think, the, I think the, the, the story or the metaphor he's used before is how much of these ideas do we really hold on to matters, right? You yes. can't just, yeah. and, and I think he means that both ways. I think in one sense, you have to be careful not to dump everything because there are things in these theories that matter for people on the street. At the same time, there are implications intellectually we've got to be aware of. So yeah. I think he's going to take us on that side of the dialogue where yeah. I think Rev and Hank were taking us on the other side of the dialogue. Yeah. Another thing I think Tim brings us uh, brings to the table is um, he has a pulse beat on a subset of the church, hmm. uh, what I would sort of call more white, conservative, evangelical side of the church. And, when, and the reason I say he has the pulse beat is because who he works for. Right. He works for Breakpoint. Yeah. And, and, and Tim is the one who reads the emails, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and so it, it, it's, it's a fascinating, it's almost you could do a sociological study of how people are responding because that's mm-hmm. what he gets, mm-hmm. the responses. So he has a different picture in this. He's, he's hearing from a, a, a certain subset mm-hmm. of, of the Christian world, uh, but he's hearing what their concerns are, what they agree with, what they don't disagree with, because if they tell right. if they do a story on something, on Christian nationalism or critical race theory, He's hearing that pushback as well, mm-hmm. uh, which I think helps shape his uh, thinking. The other thing is the book project. Right. It was really important for him because yeah. when you evaluate 60 years of a magazine like Christianity Today right. and just in the area of politics, you really do start to get a sense of how people process. And I think something you and I have said before, historians always are going to come at this different. Right. Uh, where I think, uh, say, and that's what Tim's training in is as a, as a, as a historian. Yeah. Uh, again, another difference between him and our other uh, guests, they're pastors, they're in the trenches yeah, in that way, right. uh, where he is thinking of as a historian, which always, we always take a step back. Right. <laughs> we right. always take a step back from things. We... We, I think sometimes it's hard for yeah. us to get caught up in the moment because, of, well, didn't this happen before? <laughs> right, right, and, right. You know, there's there's a there's a sort of a 
I don't want to say it's a Nietzsche suspicion, <laughs> but there is something yeah, about being something. a historian. There yeah, is. no, you're right. There's something wanting to distance so that you can sort of see the flow of things and where it's going. Yeah. Which, and I think you're right. That's a good point about Tim because he they, he's not all there. There is currency for him because it matters to the people he's interacting exactly. with. Exactly. And these people are on the streets, but maybe on different streets than you would find. Right. Uh, let's say the parishioners that go to Rev's church. Right. And I think a lot of times the work that Tim is doing is, is history to help the church in the current moment yeah. understand their situation. Yeah. Uh, so the project he and I are working on, um, the two books that he's published before, are it's not just history for history's sake, but it's history so we can understand, well, how did we get to this yeah, point, yeah. And, and which is a different goal. And, that, and let me just say while we're here that if this is the first one you're listening to, go back and listen to the other two in the Absolutely. series because yeah. we, we didn't intend any one of these to stand alone. We intended this to be, even though we didn't have all three of these gentlemen in the same room at the same time, yeah. we intended this as a conversation across the spectrum here of what we're, what we're and facing. And I really so. think if you really want to understand this, how we are trying to present this problem, this division in the church we're experiencing... Uh, you almost have to listen to all of them yeah, in yeah. order because yeah. there was an intentionality to it. Yeah, to how we did uh, it. Yeah. Including what will come after this. Yeah, that's right. So. Thanks, Dr. Trevor. Welcome back, uh, viewers slash listeners. This is uh, Dr. Dan Spander, Dr. Mark Draper, Unlikely Pilgrims. We're continuing our conversation about divisions in the church. And one thing I appreciate, uh, Dr. Draper, about what we've done is while we're asking larger cultural questions, we really want to know how it matters for the church. How are Christians supposed to grapple with this? And I think I, it's funny, I said in the class this morning, something I've heard you say a hundred times now, I don't expect the world to get it right, but I do expect the church to take it seriously and really seriously consider how we're showing the love of Christ in our community. So I think I've, while I've heard a lot of vitriol in our culture, I'm glad for this space to kind of think through how Christians ought to engage with this. And as I engage Christians in my community, I, I hear a lot of thoughtlessness, even from my own community, like there's reactions and responding and not why we believe this and what is the culture actually saying. Uh, so I look forward to this conversation as well. We've been, you know, we've been um, talking to some of your friends that you've gone to school with, and they're asking us to think things through maybe from an African-American perspective, maybe things we've lost, forgotten, or not paying attention to. Today, we're asking maybe a different set of questions around the same ideas. And um, we're, uh, we're glad that we're joined with uh, Tim Padgett, um, who is works for the Colson Center. And I believe that he's a friend of yours, Dr. Draper. Um, so he is. We're working on a here. working on a book together. I don't know. Should we talk that yet, Tim, or is that too early? <laughs> uh, well, I, I've told several people. Yeah, I've been working on. I always got to be working on a new project. Yeah. So, and what is that book, Doctor Draper? <laughs> I say. Well, <laughs> I mean, so yeah. So, uh, so Tim and I uh, are are working on a book. Um, I guess would tangentially be around the topic we're talking about today. Right. Uh, <laughs> we're working on a book together, uh, looking at. Um, race and slavery and abolition uh, amongst American Christians uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. I guess we'll spill a little bit into the 20th centuries, but uh, that's more Tim's favorite thing. I'm good if everything stops at 1899. Um, but um, yeah, so we've been working on that project uh, together, processing a lot of ideas. Um, we've presented papers on this and just try to work through this. Our goal is to have almost like a textbook type of thing where we could assign this to an undergrad to give them an understanding of how does the Bible handle slavery? How have people, how has the church understood the Bible and slavery? And how does it particularly look in this area of abolition in uh, antebellum America? Am I missing anything there, Dr. Dr. Padgett? Uh, no, I mean, just thinking it, it, it's, uh, I think it's, like you say, it's, it's a design for, you might say an entry-level discussion thing, uh, something for professors to assign in a class, something for pastors to give to people in their church, uh, people, someone who looks at 
uh, American history and see some of the darker aspects, the, the harder moral questions, uh, and then look at the Bible and see that there's slavery there. And it's not exactly don't do it. It's a little bit more complicated than that. And to help those people who are struggling with that moral crisis about how they view their faith, mm-hmm. whether that's uh, uh, Anglo-Americans who struggle with, you know, my ancestors did this and how does that fit with the Bible or African-Americans or how can I worship a God who would endorse what happened to my great, great so-and-so. Uh, and that's a real crisis that I think that we you see in, in academia and in churches. Uh, and so hopefully to not to solve the problem, obviously, but to uh, uh, add, a, add a bit of a step along the way as a, a, to get, be a benefit. Now, Have historians ever solved the problem? <laughs> <laughs> we write the history book, so I guess that means we, we decide what happened, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if I, can, if I can extend from that comment out to our topic, and this came up in our conversation offline, but is this idea, and I, I don't know if I hear you saying this, Dr. Padgett, but it seems to be that there's this tension in our own minds between what our country is and what it ought to have been, um, what, what it was. And I think mm-hmm. historians want to explain things so we understand why it happened without justifying, which is a bit of a line to mm-hmm. have to walk. And I think as Christians, we have other reasons why we do that, because we have this other comparison right. point, the kingdom of Christ and, and God. Does that, does that mean that we mm-hmm. can't appreciate also that these realities are difficult, complicated, that slavery belongs, right. these things belong to more complicated history? So how do we how do we explain history without justifying it? How do we appreciate the past without glorifying it? I mean, that is a hard thing. I mean, you think of any, uh, whenever I would teach, um, I mean, I don't teach right now, but in the past when I would teach, I would try to explain what history was. And I would explain that history isn't everything that happened. Mm. It, a history book is not a pure chronicle of every single thing that happened. You have to be selective, even just a simple chronicle. You think like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles and the monks from a thousand years ago, they were selective. They didn't choose everything. Every, it has a purpose, has a telos. Uh, and I think that uh, it's to, uh, to help explain what happened. I mean, sometimes it is simply laying it out for future historians, for future people to be able to analyze. But a lot of it is to explain it itself, to say, this is what happened, but this is why. Uh, why is it that certain cultures rose and certain cultures fell? It's a accumulating the knowledge of the past for the sake of, a, I think it is what it used to say. I say it's accumulating the knowledge of the past or organizing the events of the past um, and organized presentation of the events of the past so that the present can work towards a better future. Mm-hmm. And that is, so it, there, there is a moral aspect to history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't seem like that because sometimes you're simply reciting the things that happened. And there is something, there's almost... I don't want to say there's an amoral aspect to the historian's craft, but there's something to that because you have to do more than find the villain and make him look bad right. because all you end up, yeah, you end up with a cartoon at that point and that's useless. Right. Uh, a, car- a cartoonish version of the, the people of history doesn't really do anybody good because you're not really doing history. You're simply, well, that's fan fiction. Well, that's another thing. Aren't we weaponizing it in a sense? I mean, this is the feeling to me is that that's a great way to say it. I like that, that image. You're, you're, you're sort of make, turning history into cardboard cutouts and, and sort of a graphic novel. It isn't what happens mm-hmm. kind of weaponizing it for your own political purposes now. It seems to be the trend we're on. Yeah, I mean, I think that we have, and definitely in the last, say, 20 years or so, uh, we've seen that more and more. Uh, and you do see it on the left and the right. Um, you see the saintly biographies of the founding fathers <laughs> that aren't really accurate. Uh, and then you see the not so saintly. And so, I mean, uh, like... Uh, Dr. Draper and I have discussed how that we've got, um, you've got the, uh, the homeschoolish sort of versions of American history. You've got the, like the David Barton sorts of things. And then you've got the Howard Zinn sorts of things. And both of these are caricatures. Yeah. 
Uh, they don't deal with a real issue because they're not really studying the past. They're using, the, using history as a source of anecdotes, um, very structured, very edited anecdotes for the sake of a contemporary discussion. It seems like it seems like in a lot of scholarship right now um, and in even in the research uh, I've done for this podcast and research that I'm doing, mm -hmm. uh, Tim, for, for our project, um, th there really is an activist scholar work going on mm -hmm. uh, where that's actually encouraged. It's, it's, it, there's some stuff I've been reading recently where uh, what you and I are trying to do in our scholarship, what the three of us have tried to do in our scholarship is, is actually mm -hmm. poo-pooed. Yeah, it's it's yeah. saying that that's not actually worth anything anymore, um, that that's mm -hmm. somehow a, you know, a, a white male power play, to use the exact mm -hmm. words. Um, and mm -hmm. so it'd be very interesting just to even see where our discipline even goes in the next 20, 30 years. You know, will we be greeters at Walmart because we, <laughs> we can't get a job doing what, what we do? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm OK with that. I'm an extrovert, so I'm fine yeah. with that. Right. Um, but what, what we wanted to kind of dig into, Tim, is um, your, your book, Dual Citizens, um, mm -hmm. and also help us process what we've been trying to process is this idea of Christian nationalism uh, or what some people are calling white Christian nationalism. Uh, mm -hmm. And it seems as if um, around the election time, uh, I was getting lots of emails and texts from fellow Christians, parishioners, clergy. My church is divided. My church is divided. I mm -hmm. I've got one side of the church that uh, has a Trump flag and, and, and thinks America is a Christian nation. Uh, okay. I got another part of my church. They're woke. And, and, and they're, all they do is, 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 is read James Cone and critical mm -hmm. race theory. And somehow this affects why they should wear or not wear a mask at church. Mm -hmm. And all this stuff kind of, we're just in this sense. And really, I, 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 I've appreciated uh, reading through the book. And I, and I want you to explain what, what the book uh, has done. But can we talk about a little bit about Christian nationalism? I mean, is that, is that even a thing? Is that even, is that a real thing? Or is this just something that the media has kind of created to, uh, and again, I, I think I'm hearing more and more of this language after January 6th. Um, mm -hmm. Is that even an issue? Is that a thing? Oh, well, what's your question you want me to answer first? Talk about the book or talk about Christian nationalism? <laughs> You're both at the same time. Yeah, yeah. both at the same time. Both at the same time. Yeah, well, I'll talk about both sides of my mouth. Okay, well, the book arose. It's, it's Dual Citizens. Uh, it's, a, uh, kind of a, it's a project that was a Lexham Press, because uh, of publishing arm of Logos Bible Software, which basically every pastor in America uses. Uh, and uh, they wanted to, they went through, they got several editors, volume editors, uh, to go through certain aspects of Christianity Today's archived articles. Uh, now, some people did focus on one thing, some people focused on another. I ended up doing the one on dealing with Christianity Today and politics. Uh, part of that's because my dissertation, I, and actually my MA thesis as well, had dealt a lot with Christianity Today, taking uh, specifically Christianity Today and a few other magazines and how they reported on um, American military actions over various periods of time. Now, a lot of that ended up bringing in, when you talk about military actions, you inevitably talk about the, you know, uh, classical Christian questions of just war and pacifism, uh, the role of the state, and then what is America? Is America a Christian nation or is it not? Those conversations are at least addressed in these issues and are pertinent to the discussions. So what I did with this book is I went through 60 years of uh, Christianity Day articles. Now, I didn't read every article throughout the 60 years, mind you. Uh, but I went through and kind of selected out, uh, curated, um, 
uh, articles dealing with various topics. Now, it could have been a lot larger. There's a lot there. Um, th simply one section on, uh, I mean, you could have done a biography, uh, simply a biography of Christianity today's view of U.S. presidents. And that ends up being one chapter out of five. Um, but simply that could have been a book in itself and the various other topics as well. So going through there, and so the, the chapters in the book are you know, dealt with U.S. presidents, uh, dealt with foreign policy issues, dealt with domestic uh, affairs, uh, dealt with the view of kind of church state sorts of issues and, you know, religious right, evangelical left. Kind of these are the, the, the I mean, it could have broken down in different ways, but this is just a way to approach the material. And it really was a fascinating thing because you see there the treatment and the, the issues that uh, were mattered in 1956. Well, they weren't the same that they mattered in 2016. Mm. One of my favorites is that when you get uh, close to uh, 1960, the biggest concern for these all else being equal conservative writers and editors at CT wasn't that uh, JFK was a Democrat. It's that he was a Roman Catholic. Mm -hmm. That was the pressing issue for them. And it was more than simply, you know, sectarian spite. They really believed, they were really concerned uh, that the president of the United States was going to be taking his orders from the Vatican. Uh, and so that's, that, that, that's a big issue now. That really isn't quite so big of an issue right uh, today. That was a big issue you know, decades ago. And so you see the change and you see the changing attitudes. You see that sometimes they'll emphasize abortion. Sometimes they'll emphasize uh, um, racial issues. And those are the two kind of moral issues that I focused on there. Um, and it, you, you just so they're, they're it's having to engage with a great many issues. Uh, they, they're having to engage with the, the question of, can the state, you know, what, what does it mean when the state can, you know, shut you down? I mean, that's, you know, we're talking about censorship and cancel culture issues now. Now that's a corporate question more than a, a civil question. Uh, but those same issues are, are dealt with throughout the whole 60 years. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the idea is uh, to kind of engage to, to, again, as we discussed, what's the role of a historian in this is to what can we learn from here? What can we look back and see what Carl Henry, uh, what Billy Graham and all these others and Chuck Colson and all sorts of other people who were involved with, with CT, what did they say? How did they engage with those issues in their time? And going back to the previous question a little bit there, I think that's a key thing. One of the things that as a historian I have tried to do is to deal with people, not just where they are, but when they are, yeah. uh, to deal, to, to evaluate someone, not on the basis of what we know, because well, we know information that they didn't know because they, they simply didn't know it yet. And also there has been uh, questions have been teased out further. The implications have been teased out. Questions of racial, uh, uh, racial reconciliation meant something in 1957 that's very different than they mean now. And the consequences of taking a stand then is very different than taking a stand now. And so uh, on the whole, you can look at what CT did and several others and see that their stances on race or the state that they're for the time, quite admirable. We might wish that they would say more, but also if they said what we said now, we would, no one would get in trouble for saying what we say now. But 60 years ago, they caught some heat for it. Right. Um, and then I guess, yeah. And then to the question of Christian nationalism, is it a real thing? Well, like a lot of questions, I think it, it depends on what you mean. Mm. It's a bit of yes and a bit of no. I think that, uh, as we said, you get the, 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 the polls in American and particular Christian society right now of Christian nationalism and critical race theory and various other critical theories. Lots of people who support critical theory to, or at least defend its use, either advocates who like whole hog for it or people who say, yeah, there's something worth there. They defend it. They'll say so. 
Mm-hmm. They will say, yes, we think this is, this, is, this is what's going on. Now, there's a whole lot of people who kind of embrace the ideas without knowing it and kind of critical theories given philosophy to back that up. And that's a, that's a whole other question. But how many people call themselves Christian nationalists? Yeah. Not a lot of people come out and say, yes, I am a Christian nationalist. There are some. I think that what, what we're dealing with here is it is, a, it is a label that is often used by others about people. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's a fake thing in that sense. However, I don't think you have to spend much time uh, on the internet, on you know, various social media things to discover there are a great number of people who conflate their Christian faith and their American citizenship. I mean, that's why the name of the book that it did is Dual Citizens, to, to point at that tension. For a lot of people, to be an American is to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be an American. Now, as a Southerner here, that's a very common experience. I'm from Tennessee. Uh, now, uh, now, Mark, I know you're from points north, and I don't know what it is quite there. But in, in the South, to be a Southerner is to be a Christian, to be a Christian is to be a Southerner. And there is that kind of identification there. For a lot of people in America, they do make that identification. So there might not be too many people who would, who would self-identify as Christian nationalists. However, there are a lot of people who cannot extricate their patriotism from their uh, faith. So in that sense, yes, that is a real thing. So there, there's a bit of an answer. To, a bit no, that's, of both. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good point, because I think what, what Mark and I sort of were, were toying with when we had our own discussion on this was the idea that there, there's more of a range. Nationalism itself, to me, in the 20th century mm-hmm. is a very, it's a very specific term that's now been generalized to include a lot of things. Like mm-hmm. if you believe there mm-hmm. ought to be a nation with boundaries and actually have a government, well, all of a sudden that's nationalism, right? And then and so there's right. these other terms that you can use, like, and I think Mark and I have interacted with a term like Christian republicanism or a Christian republic, which mm-hmm. is very much a 19th century concept. Nationalism is very much a European mm-hmm. concept that comes here in the mm-hmm. last 20th century. So, so it, to your, the way that you're using it, you're, you're seeing a broader umbrella here that there are Christians that mm-hmm. say Christianity is crucial to the functioning of a republic. That may not be nationalism, mm-hmm. though. And, and is, is that term as right, yeah. yeah, dangerous as it sounds? Because to me, it is. But I, you know, I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a big difference between a Carl Henry and a Francis Schaeffer who saw um, Christian faith, uh, the Christianity as the, the, the fountain from which democracy, uh, free market economics and things like that come. That we, it's, it's a sine qua non. You, you don't get the one without the other. You don't, it's, it's a precedent thing. Uh, that is not the same as Christian nationalism. Um, there are, uh, however, you do have, when you do have, you know, let me see if I have the book here. Where did it go? Oh, I don't have it here. Uh, book that I read recently, actually for CT. Um, it was, uh, goodness, I'm blanking on the name, but it was a very interesting in that it was a great analysis of Christian nationalism. It was actually was the first the time that I was taking America back for God. Yes. Thank you. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Very well written, very well researched. And I thought they were ve- the authors were very careful uh, to distinguish between, uh, to some extent, they were very careful to distinguish between um, uh, the, 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 the number of people who go to church regularly and the people who are Christian nationalists. There's, there's a big distinction there. Mm-hmm. However, sometimes when you read that book, it's almost a travelogue. Uh, they, they missed things, uh, you know, it kind of, here's the exotic things. I mean, for instance, that one of their questions, how to define what a Christian nationalist is, is um, whether or not you see God as America of having a, having a role in God's plan. Well, <laughs> depending on what you mean, unless we're open theists, we all think that. I mean, yeah. I was thinking about this just before we started here. 
that, I mean, you take America out of the last hundred years or hundred plus years and think about what changes without those 2 million doughboys coming over the German, the Imperial German army defeats the Russian army, turns on France and they win without the, the Americans supplying the British in World War II, before we even get in, it doesn't happen. And supplying the Russians, the Russians can rightly brag about how many, what proportion of Germans that they killed. But if we weren't supplying them with guns and gas and trucks and tanks, they would they wouldn't have wouldn't have been able to pull it off. Um, so, and then the Cold War, all these things. And you can say all sorts of qualifying things like America wasn't good. Well, that doesn't mean that America. You can say that America was wicked, as Babylon was, as Rome was. But none of us are going to, few of us are going to say that God doesn't have a plan. And I think that that's how, that, that was a failure, I think, in that analysis. Because I would say that God has a special place for America in, in our time. Well, because obviously so. Because America is the strongest country and the wealthiest country and all sorts of things like that. That doesn't mean sacrosanct. Right. That doesn't, I would never say that America is uh, holy in that sense. So I think that, that that is where some of the analysis fails is because they don't make sufficient distinctions along those lines. That's, that's a fair point. And, and, and even Dan and I have mm -hmm. talked about this and Tim, you and I've talked about this in, in the project we're working mm -hmm. on is, you know, I'm not sure the, for, for, for all the foibles of the church when it comes to slavery and some of these issues, we, we mm -hmm. we're all historians. We've all written about it. We know about that. So don't email us, but <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, we get it. We know, but, but with all that said, in some ways, Christianity did provide the epistemology and the ontology mm -hmm. to even talk about abolition. Because if we mm -hmm. were still just operating from Aristotle and Plato, I don't mm -hmm. think you get William Wilberforce. I don't think you get some of those things. They, they weren't concerned about those issues, the idea of dignity and I think that was a, I mean, when, you know, so when you look at those pieces, so in many ways, the, the, the debates here, um, in some cases, the people that want to beat up America, uh, mm -hmm. they have the luxury to beat up America because of some of the things that America's mm -hmm. done in the past, right? It's, it's some, some yeah, I mean, I think, capital. Yeah, I, I think that on the one hand, you're absolutely right, that the virtues of America provide the intellectual framework for critique in America. There's a, the old joke that Reagan used to tell about, you know, you can, uh, th that you can go in America, you can go to the president's desk and say, I think you're doing a horrible job. And then the Russian says, oh, we can do that too. I can go to the, you know, the premier's desk and say, I think that president Reagan is running, is, is doing a horrible job. <laughs> and there's the gag. It, it, it only works. It only works here. The criticism only works here. I think that there, there's, um, completely lost track of what I was going to say there. But yes, there is the intellectual framework for criticism. We've talked about the nature of uh, European society before Christianity. And this is where Tom Holland's work comes in so brilliantly, yeah. is that it was raw power. Yeah. It was just power. It was oppression. That was normal. And that what Christianity comes in and it says, says that, no, there's more than that there. That the, the, the slave and the emperor are equally made in the image of God. And that is a vital distinction that Christianity brings in that you don't have elsewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you have it in Judaism, you, uh, obviously, because that's where it's flowing from, but you don't have it in, in Islam to the same degree. Um, and so you, you don't have it in a materialist sort of thing. Well, even to your point with Islam, you, you, when you look at when, when the British finally decide to end the slave trade, they go to the Turkish Empire and say, mm -hmm. we no longer want to do business with a slave country. And the Muslims are yeah. saying, well, what are you talking about? It's in our book. You know, like, what do you mean we, we don't right. do slavery? Mm -hmm. 
And, and, and right. England's like, well, no, we, we, we want you to stop doing it. Uh, we want you to stop mm-hmm. being involved in that. And, and basically they have to use their sort of their economic pressure to mm-hmm. bear on, on, on the Turkish empire at that point. So you're right, there, there's something there. And maybe that's why this is such a difficult topic over nationalism, Christian nationalism versus mm-hmm. critical race theory, where uh, if, if, if Fred Douglas and James Cohn were critiquing the Romans, it wouldn't mm-hmm. just be as much of an internal debate. It's Christians no, critiquing. It would be a very short debate. Right? Brothers, right. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, this, um, there, was, there was a statement you made before we got on, and I, I don't know if I'm going to get the wording quite right, but something the effect of it, I, I don't know who you were quoting here, but the idea that, yeah, America compared to all, all these other options is really pretty good compared to the scriptural ideal. It's not very good at all, which I think is a really right. healthy yeah, from, way of doing it. Yeah, that was a uh, quote from Carl Henry. Uh, I think it was a church in um, Arkansas in 1979. It was it was a fascinating thing talking about you know uh, something about looking forward to the 80s, and it was just kind of interesting for to be reading that in 2010 or whenever I was doing that research, um, and to see uh, the sermon. He said something to the effect of, "I too am bullish about America when compared to some of the alternatives, but I'm bearish when I examine contem- the contemporary drift and examine the, the Word of God or something to that effect," pointing out that. Uh, that is a, a distinction that you lose. He's pointing out there that you, we, can, we, can, we have a basis to make a comparison. We can look for him in 1979. You could look at the Soviet Union and say they're wicked and vile and we are better. While also because you're comparing it not simply equals, but compared to something higher than, beyond that, you could also say in 1979, yeah, America's got serious problems. Carl Henry had some very strong words to say about racial issues long before it was the cool thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, the, that that's what you miss, that both Christian nationalism and uh, uh, critical race theory, that they, they level everything. Um, and so it's comparison stuff. Uh, and so it, is this for America? Is this against America? And I think that uh, what, what you see, often what, I think what you miss is that you, it gets reduced to a single spectrum. So you, instead of it being, let's compare this to a universal paradigm, which is the classical case of theism, that there's something beyond, something higher than, a revelation and even a natural theology something that we can compare things to. I'm sorry? I'm sorry, it's something transcendent. Yeah, yeah something transcendent, exactly. Uh, but to compare it to, it becomes a single spectrum, left and right. Mm-hmm. So is it for America? Then that means if you're on the right, that means it's a good thing. If you're on the left, it's a bad thing. The irony is that I think that if you want to talk about Christian nationalism, you need to also include the left in that. And here's why. Because I think that people hold, that many people on the left hold America to a much higher standard than they do other countries. Yeah. That they are willing to, I mean, you think about, there's the irony of, uh, there was a, a Babylon B thing talking about, um, uh, it was a, p- a fake poster for Mulan and saying, uh, in an embarrassment, uh, Disney forgets to uh, Photoshop out the concentration camp in the background um, <laughs> for the, the, the Uyghurs. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's a dark comedy thing, but it's just that people are perfectly willing to turn a blind eye to all sorts of atrocities, but they don't do it if it's Americans. And so that I think that for many people on the left, there is this holding America to a higher standard, expecting things of America that they, they, don't, they don't have that comparison. Uh, uh, I've read lots of sojourners or post-American in the few years before that, and they fail in this. They, they are correct to point out that the Soviets were wrong. But they almost always follow up with, well, it's just as bad as what we have done. Mm-hmm. And I think the other aspect where the left can be a Christian nationalist 
uh, maybe you should say Christian statist because it's a little bit different right. for sure, is that they, just as much as the, you know, a, a conservative group wants to implement biblical morality through the state, well, so do people on the left, yeah. except it's different issues. It's yeah. issues on immigration. It's issues on, um, you know, poverty relief and things like that. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I do think that it, one thing I think, I've, I don't know if I mentioned in the book, but I think the two, the twin idolatries that American culture, American Christian culture tends to go to is that Christian nationalism tends to idealize and idolize America, the country, the people, the history, that kind of thing. Whereas people on the left, um, they, they tend to idolize the United States, as in the government, um, the managerial elite kind of thing, that they are, the, this is, the state can save us, as opposed to the country can save us. Mm-hmm. And so they're both guilty in just slightly different ways. Hmm. It sounds, what it sound, I mean, uh, what we're hearing is really is that there's, a, there's an American exceptionalism that can come from both sides of the aisle. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And so let's go back to the, the book you mentioned, um, Taking mm-hmm. America Back for God. They, they, mm-hmm. they talk about mm-hmm. Christian nationalism, but then they talk about this uh, Christian nationism. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, is that a better way of getting at it? So to answer your point, your question earlier, you know, what was it like in Yankee land uh, in the 80s? Uh, with, uh, so I, I don't think I, I don't know if I've told either of you two this story. So the, the listeners and you guys will be the first to hear this. So uh, when I was a kid in the middle of the Reagan years, growing up in good fundamentalist Christianity, uh, you know, eight or nine, something like that. Uh, obviously we knew that the Bible was the word of God, right? And then that was good. But, and I don't know where my little eight-year-old mind got this, okay? So no one told me this explicitly, Mm -hmm. but there was a sense that once God was done inspiring the Bible, um, well, then he inspired the constitution and the declaration Mm -hmm. of independence. Mm -hmm. What's that? Yeah, other mm-hmm. work to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that both, you know, that the Bible obviously is more important, but these are still right. documents inspired by God in some way. And again, no mm-hmm. one ever said that explicitly, but maybe I was picking up some sort of implicit bias of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, so, oh, good. My my ten my ten year old son is uh, he's I think he's going to follow my footsteps of historian nature like he wants to come to pennsylvania and visit you sometimes so we can go see gettysburg gotcha. but um he would be happy uh but he has been very sad lately because he's discovered and i had to tell him that the founding fathers and lincoln and teddy roosevelt probably won't be with us in the great beyond uh, and that's it's about breaking his little heart i mean he's not being nationalist about it but he's kind of assumed that because they're good guys yeah and i said probably the same applies to churchill there's a uh, romanticism uh, we want the people that we like to be mm. believers just like us. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. That's a great point. So l- mm-hmm. let's go back to that. Do you think, so Christian nationalism, I think you're right. There's, there's a, it's a term that's getting thrown around. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's, we, we use the term of an umbrella in our, one of our talks, but I mm-hmm. think you could even, I don't know if I want to go here because it could easily lead to basket of deplorables, but you know, a big basket <laughs> of, of, mm-hmm. of, of peoples who, you just sort of label Christian nationalists mm-hmm. and you just kind of lump uh, the old grandma who wants to see Roe mm-hmm. versus Wade overturned uh, mm-hmm. with the people storming the Capitol. They're all Christian nationalists. And you just, right. you know, you yeah. just paint with a broad brush. But it, is there, and it sounds like you've actually got into this, but it'd be great to hear you unpack a bit is what about Christian nationism? Is that a problem that we have mm-hmm. in America? Well, I, I do think that there is definitely a Christ, 
uh, something like you might say churchianity, that there's an element within Western society. And it's particular, again, like we talked about earlier, uh, I think before the, we started recording, the folk religion within white American Christianity. And I wouldn't necessarily want to call it Christianity. It's the churchianity. It's the people who go to church sometimes that if they believe in, if you ask them what they believe, they say they're Christian. Now, could they explain much of anything about what it means to be a Christian? Well, not really. Mm. It's basically Santa Claus. You know, you do right. There's an old guy up there who takes care of you and provides and that kind of thing. Uh, but there's nothing really distinctly Christian about it. it. It's monotheism with Christian names. You know, it's, it's not much to it. Um, and so I do think that that is a very strong element within, Christ, within Christ, Christianist culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's where you do have the, that's how people like even the John Adams and Thomas Jefferson's and Abraham Lincoln's can speak Christianese without being necessarily personally Christians mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that has endured among, uh, you, know, mm, you know, John and Jane Doe, ordinary society far longer than it has among American elites. I mean, there's, uh, I forget where I heard it. Some, someone said that uh, America has a, a general population that is as religious as India's, but it has an elite that is secular as Sweden's. Yeah. And I think there's a lot to that. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, and that it, it's like somewhere in the middle, there is, I don't want to say compare elite and, and uh, I want to be careful about that, but there, there is a secular elite, but there's also an evangelical elite. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is an extensive group. There's lots of overlapping groups. There's lots of people who, for whom, again, the, their faith in America, it's not that they consciously conflate them or not that they consciously put America over Christianity, but in practice, they kind of do. And again, this, I think this is why when you begin to dig past that 81% of evangelicals are voted for Trump, and you realize that once the, you, you, you qualify that by how many of them go to church every Sunday, how many of them can explain details about the Christian faith, that begins to broaden a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there, there's, that folk, there's that folk Christianity or Christianistanity, however you want to put that, yeah. uh, that is an issue. Uh, but I think that you also have kind of a, a shallow, barely Christian left uh, when uh, an article that I had helped to write actually about Christian nationalism uh, for Breakpoint. And I had a friend who wrote into me to say that I was lying, not that I was mistaken, but that I was lying uh, because I hadn't included X, Y, and Z that fit the kind of the classical progressive points. And for him, you know, do I think as a believer, I think so, but he sees it almost just, just as much as, you know, the, the stereotype of the redneck who never he doesn't really, really go to church or anything, but he says he's a Christian, he just as much sees it through his own cultural lens. And that cultural lens is very mm, secular progressive. Yeah. And so his faith is very qualified by his culture in that sense, too. Can I, can I just ahead, more, um, because, and I, I don't want to switch in a little bit, but maybe, maybe related to what you're talking about, because I think mm-hmm. where people use the term Christian nationalism, something you mentioned, which I think is very helpful, is this idea that there are Christian ideas underlying the American Republic that make it possible. Mm-hmm. We, we've ignored the Christian components, but they're still there, right? They're in the water, they're, mm-hmm. they're still in the air now. But for people that say that, and, and rightly so, that America's failed, they, they then want mm-hmm. to blame the failure on the whole complex of everything that goes in with it, mm-hmm. education, the Christianity. So people, and I, and I think this is what I found, people that, that support, let's say, cr- critical race theory, they feel like it's the only time, the only cohesive thought they've got to say, I can now criticize mm-hmm. 
not only the politics of America, but the Judeo-Christian roots, the whole bowl of wax. And so now if I call mm -hmm. that Christian nationalism, I can tie all the, the worst sinews of this together into right. a cohesive thing. Is that, do you feel like that's what's going on when we, a lot of times people that use CRT? I, I think I think there is a lot to that is with the use of Christian nationalism. And I think it's because in the last few years, what you've seen is, you know, it's the center cannot hold. There's so many things, so many elements of our society that have become frayed, afraid, but frayed, you know, breaking apart. Um, and there's confusion. And th I think that you have people who are center right, center left, who look at the uh, passionate embrace of, of, Tr of President Trump by many people on the right. Uh, and they don't see how it makes sense. And they, the, the, with, they don't see how it makes sense given, you know, the, 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 for all the criticisms that people offer to Bill Clinton for his, you know, marital infidelities. Hmm. All of a sudden, that doesn't matter when it's, it was talking about Trump. And they, they notice there's a dichotomy. There is a, there's a problem there, an inconsistency. Right. And so they're trying to come up with an explanation as to why this has happened. Right. And I do think it is a kind of a catch, it becomes a catch all phrase. I don't think it's necessarily malicious. I think that for some people, I mean, if you're writing for Huffington Post or The Nation or something like that, I wouldn't actually, malicious isn't even the right word, but it's just like that there is a, aha, we got him. Right. But Christian nationalism can be an, it can be a key, an explanatory term that, well, explains how things have gotten nutty in the world without examining how their own role in that aspect as well. I no, it's really helpful to me because I think I hadn't thought of it in those terms mm -hmm. that once you invoke the term, you now have a have a you have a, some framework now to sort of jam all the parts in and then label them right. and evaluate them. Because I think for a lot of Christians mm -hmm. that, that struggle with their past, they, they don't have good words. This is what my concern with a lot of young students mm -hmm. for them to say, oh, yeah, we did screw up as a country. We have made mistakes. But in the mm -hmm. in sometimes the Christian fundamental circles, if you say that you you have to leave the general Christian you know, circle to say that. And so they don't feel free to do it. Mm -hmm. and this other idea comes along and it's got it all neatly packaged. They go, here's where we failed, here's where we failed. Mm -hmm. So it becomes much more attractive in its popular use than it probably is in its academic use. Mm -hmm. Then they get tied up in it. They don't know how to. So I, I, I think that's a really helpful way to explain it. Too. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Yeah. I think too, Dan, I think, what's, yeah, happening, I mean, I think <laughs> what's happening too with students anyway, is that language of critical theory Frankfurt School critical theory and critical race mm -hmm. theory, uh, where, you know, when we were in college or in high school, the only people who were talking about this were people in, in the ivory tower. Right. And now mm -hmm. this is the Vox Popula, right? We, we have mm -hmm. undergrads saying things. You're like, that sounds like Marcuse. Where, where did you get that? Right. <laughs> and you know, they didn't read that because they don't read what we assigned. Right. So we know they didn't read that. So, and, and it, there have been times where I've said to students, I said, where did you hear that? And they said, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. But they, they, they say it like sort of it's a priori and as if, you know, well, the sky is mm -hmm. blue and we are in late stage capitalism that is oppressive. And you're like, <laughs> wow, where did that come from? Right. And where did, <laughs> and so I think that's one of the, the chief differences we're seeing today, right? Is that critical theory, theories, really, it's, it's plural, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, are, are becoming part of the Vox Popula. Uh, and even now it's maybe it, maybe it's what uh, politically it's that way. Maybe too, Tim, maybe this is kind of what Colson mm -hmm. was saying, right? That, that, that politics mm -hmm. is downstream from culture and mm -hmm. yeah. stuff's been brewing for some time and mm -hmm. we weren't aware of it because we were doing whatever we were doing. And now all of a sudden yeah. 
Now, all of a sudden, the president is saying things like, well, I need to pass legislation to address systemic racism without defining mm -hmm. systemic racism. Right. Well, I, mean, I think that it, it goes with uh, Schaefer's uh, emphasis on the loss of the Christian consensus. That there was a, you know, the, there was a time, and you think about what, what, what I mean. This is more 19th century. I'll defer to you here, Mark. At uh, what time was America the most Christian? And I've heard, I think Martin Null was talking about in you know Civil War era. Yeah, was was Most yep. evangelicals. And I remember the dynamic of discussing that with students sometimes about that. Very often, you know, some battle in the Civil War, both both armies lined up against each other. Significant numbers of them would have been genuine evangelicals, and that's yep. its own interesting discussion. But as that consensus has first fades and then dissipates, um, what's replacing it? And I think that for a large segment of an American population, uh, they kept the terms of America and things like that and covenant and things like that. And it, this becomes the Christian nationalism. And but then others, they're looking for something else as well. And there are many of these Christians who rightly look at American society as being flawed. Uh, they're looking for someone, someone to explain why. And too many, I would say, many, if not too many, of the voices on, who offer a more conservative response, a right-wing response, are unwilling to admit the flaws. Right. And I think, I think part of this goes back to around 1970 or so. Because, I mean, you read through uh, the, the CT, you read through things like uh, magazines from the time, people could be very strong with two, two, two elements. One, uh, people could, evangelical thinkers could be very critical, like that Carl Henry quote, they could be very critical of the United States in certain areas while recognizing it's better than the alternative. And you also, you don't have the partisan aspect. I mean, you, you don't have the Republicans, Democrats um, element in, in within evangelicalism. I would say that most, I mean, you do have some references uh, to particular politicians here and there, but most of the commentary is pretty nonpartisan. It's nice. It, but the, I mean, you think even as late as 1976, Jimmy Carter, yeah, he's, yeah. he's our guy, right? And so you do see that dynamic. So there has been this polarization and this split where instead of having uh, a, a singular group, evangelicalism, that could be both critical of the United States and its own culture and positive, be able to compare it to something else, it kind of split. Uh, and I, I sometimes I wonder how much of this is a victim of its own success. Mm -hmm. The evangelicalism grew, uh, grew enough that those aspects became discrete. Critical, they achieved critical mass. So that they could become not only speaking to the culture, but to one another. You got this wrong. And I think that you get so many things where um, people on the right looked at people on the left and said, how can you turn a blind eye to the horrors of communism? I mean, yeah. they were awful. And many people in the evangelical left, they might be critical of communism, but they would qualify it. Awful. Then I think you had people on the left looking at people on the right and saying, how can you be so silent about race? These are image bearers of God and you're, giving not you're not being bold enough here and that they're be, they're they're rightly able to be critical and so that these things split i think that yeah so around 1970 or so the vietnam war the you know the 1968 i mean 1968 is the year that you know everything yeah. changes and all i think that has a lot to do with it too how the evangelicals are facing i like that because i i i often hear it's the it's the religious right that starts in 1980 and i've always gone back to right. vietnam and the consensus, mm -hmm. and, um, Mark Little, one of the guys I, I teach out of in the 1960s, he says he uses a similar term. He didn't say Christian consensus, American consensus, which mm -hmm. was really holding mm -hmm. the center pretty firmly up to 68. Right. And that year, mm -hmm. Tet Offensive, you know, and, and, and of mm -hmm. course, the assassination of MLK. 
it, it forced mm -hmm. people to reassess where they were. And then one group got afraid right. that the left group was now going towards communism. So they locked down the other group afraid the conservatives would never change. Mm -hmm. they so I like, I like right. 68 better than 80, quite frankly. I think that's a smarter. 68 yeah. seems to be very, I mean, especially if you read the book, uh, God's Own Party. Uh, I think that mm -hmm. book has a really good job at, at showing how the Nixon election in 68. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and there's an interesting quote from, from Nixon at that time to Billy Graham, of all people, where he says, you know, things mm -hmm. are so bad. The split is so bad in 68. He says to Billy Graham, I'm not sure I won't be the last American president. Like that, I mean, that is like, wow. I mean, that should, the stakes are high. Um, and of course we, you know, there's probably people wondering that now, right? About, about Joe Biden. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I, I like that framing of that. And, and the, other, the other thing you bring out there too, it, it seems like part of this debate between say uh, people in our churches who are, are some sort of Christian nationist or whatever word we want mm -hmm. to use, uh, yeah. And then we have the other people who, you know, everything is through the lens of race. They're very socially, they're mm -hmm. socially justice uh, uh, aware. And you, what you said that you said, you know, the, even in the, even in the, in the sixties, uh, the religious right might say to the left, how, can't you see the horrors of communism? And then they will come back and say, well, mm -hmm. can't you see the horrors of race? It, it seems like mm -hmm. these last two elections, evangelicals. And again, I think you make a great point. I'm not really sure mm -hmm. who's an evangelical in the voting booth. Right. That, yeah. but <laughs> You have some people who are saying, how can you vote for X in light mm -hmm. of race? Mm -hmm. And then you have other people say, well, how can you vote for Y in light of abortion? Mm -hmm. and, and, and they're both concerned about living out their faith in some way. Just they're channeling mm -hmm. it in very different ways. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I, I do think, though, I've noticed that so many of the arguments about politics and social issues are negative arguments are anti-arguments. They're not, this is the path that we should go on. It's how can you X? And it, it's almost like, you know, postmodernism one, it's about the story. It's not about hmm. what is, is, is this good, beautiful, true? It's, is this for the right thing? Hmm. Uh, it's almost, it's so there's such a great disconnect in people's discussions about whether or not, is this going to create a flourishing society? No, they don't ask that question. They ask, is it not that? Uh, is it for this? Is it uh, against the bad thing and for the good thing? Not will it actually accomplish something, yeah. but is it for it? And I think that that's, uh, uh, we've just so, uh, without, again, without the transcendent, without the transcendent context, we, we've lost the ability to, to judge things like that. And I think that's something that, again, the Schaefer's Christian consensus, as it fades, even the memory of the Christian consensus fades, we don't have any way to compare things anymore. Yeah. It's just, it's just like the triumph of tribalism where my group, your group, I mean, in, in one sense, the, the 2016 election was the, uh, the identity politics took both parties, where the left in many ways was so strongly already, and it definitely pushed further along that road, in the camp of identity politics. So much of the rhetoric, at least, behind so many people with uh, uh, voting for Trump, it, it shaped, sounded so much like identity politics as well, just a different identity. It's a great point. So, so we've got to rectify this in some way as a Christian and a Christian mind. So we, I really like the way that you talk about this sort of leveling out of our political imagination. Once you get rid of the mm -hmm. transcendent, it really does become very flat. I, I always blame the Spanish mm -hmm. Civil War for that. We really sort of trapped, <laughs> right? All social realities come now down to either communism. It's rare that you hear someone blame the Spanish-American or Spanish War, side of Civil War for things. It's, Indeed. I think it's accurate. That's a historian speaking talk. But okay, the good, point is, good, good. right? But, um, 
but in that, so so is is one of the approaches we need to take, Tim, the, the fact that we need to listen to the other side sometimes. So I, I guess one of the reasons I'm asking this is having some conversations about critical race theory, that this is another one of those very explosive divisive things and say, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is one thing that rejects everything that was being American, it's got to do this. And then the other side says, because it's un-American, I'm going to reject everything about it. And yet I hear some right. Christians say, um, well, I don't know critical race theory, but I know it's willing to call out structural racism, right? So yeah. is there is there a way forward in sort of reevaluating re something like critical race theory mm -hmm. or what, what, how do we, how do we approach something like that? Goodness, well, as I said earlier, we can solve this in five minutes, I'm sure, right? Yeah. Um, I don't mean to no, put you on the spot uh, I mean, I here, think that, No. We'll help. I mean, I think that what you, yeah, you will help a little bit, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that with, with things like critical race theories, I think we mentioned before, there is a, um, there's a resonance for many people. Uh, they recognize that something's rotten in the state of Denmark or the state of America. They recognize that it's more than, um, as I said before, it's more than tens of millions of people all individually making bad choices, which results in African-Americans have a lower, po you know, uh, worse poverty rates and things like that, and graduation rates and stuff like that. It's not that they just randomly, atomistically are choosing badly each individual with no effect of cultural drift and things like that. There were people are able to, whether the African-American community or Anglo community, whatever it is, people are able to recognize something's not right. And uh, they also see that what critical race theory is offering speaks to that and offers an explanation for that. It offers a, uh, offers a worldview. Uh, now, at Breakpoint, uh, at Colson Center, we've gotten fussed at a little bit because we referred to critical theory as a worldview. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, oh, it's not. It's an analysis. Well, frankly, to, to not call critical theory uh, a, uh, a worldview is the same as the person who checks you out of the grocery store is to call them a sales associate. You might call it something else, but it functions in the same way as a cashier. I mean, that's, that's, it just is. And it, it does this in a couple of ways. It, it provides an, it provides like an examination of life. Mm -hmm. It says, here is how the world is. It also provides an evaluation. Here is what it ought to be. Ought to be. So you've got, it says what is X, Y, Z problems. And it says, here's what ought to be. It provides a moral imperative that I think that for so many people, when they look at much of the evangelical church, what do they see? They see uh, self-discipline, which is good. Uh, and they see personal piety, which can be good in its own way. Again, very highly individualistic personal piety sort of things. They see the flaws in the evangelical church um, and they don't, uh, they see the, the critical race theory saying, hey, look, it's big picture and here's how you fit in that. And, and again, this is one of the beauties. When you, when you read, to go back several decades, you read communist literature. It's beautiful after a fashion. It's beautiful to a point until you try and do it and you <laughs> kill a hundred million people. But think about it. You think what communism does. Communism provides uh, a meta narrative for life. It provides saints and holy books. It provides martyrs. It provides an eschaton, justice for the good and, and so on, and, and damnation for the bad. It provides that. And critical race theory, not entirely accidentally, provides the same thing. It provides an explanation as to why the world is wrong. Well, white people. Um, it's, it, it provides an explanation as to how you to go about doing this. And it, it also is very tempting because, I mean, if you've engaged with anyone who has embraced critical race theory, it's non-falsifiable. Right. You don't have to worry. Uh, it's fideistic. It, it, it is very much like the fundamentalism that it often is you know, paralleled to in the sense that there's no way to question, there's no way to challenge it. It fulfills that need. 
And so I think that that's what the appeal is. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the problem is it's the problem for Christians embracing this is, is a couple of things is one is it's narrow. It's very narrow. It, it, there's a, a joke meme going around Facebook that I've seen. It says how to explain history, world history in, in 10 seconds. And it says, knock, knock, it's Europe. And that's funny. We know what that means. It's because Europeans show up and they cause a mess. But again, how much, how much human history is there? Depending on how you define it, we've got, what, 8,000 years? For how much of that time period have Europeans or Westerners been in a position where they could knock, knock anywhere? Yeah. Very little. And so much of critical theory focuses in on the role of Western capitalism, whites, the role that they have had on world, on world history. Well, that's a small portion. You go back 1,000 years. You go back 5,000 years. There's oppression. There's bigotry, there's bias, there's all these things long before the whites were able to do much of anything. So it's insufficient in that, in that it's narrow. And the other, th the other problem with it, is, I think that with, with Christians embracing it as much as they do, is that it, it's going a long way to get something that we already have. I mean, as I said, I think before, uh, the critical race theory and postmodernism, they, they point out that oppression happens and powerful people use the structures of society to, to oppress their neighbors and to reinforce their own power. Well, we know that you don't need critical. You don't need to read, you know, Foucault and, and so on to, to, to get there. You don't need to read the, the latest, you know, how to not, how to be an anti-racist. You don't need that to know that because you look through human history and you see that, that, that happens. You also don't need to know that your culture affects the way that you do things. Uh, just an example I was thinking of earlier, uh, as I said, I grew up in the South, but I, I'd been away from the South for a long time. And I went back to my wife's home in a small town of Georgia. And I was stepped onto an elevator and someone stepped in after me. And she said, how you doing? And I I'm like, I, what, what's going on here? That was an odd statement because of the culture. I was used to being in Chicago. Well, you don't do that in Chicago. You don't pop. And then uh, the same day we were driving by and a policeman waved at me and I flinched. Again, your culture, sure. We don't need to go to critical theory to understand that your culture affects things. This is what, I mean, I work for the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. I am reformed. We talk about worldview, the way that your worldview affects things. You, as a reformed, you talk about presuppositionalism and all sorts of evidentialism and stuff like that. The, the, the ideas that you have as an individual and as a wider society greatly affect how you interpret all sorts of data. And so it's going a long ways for something that we already have a rich tradition for within the church. And I think that Christians, they rightly want to um, be able to critique society. But the thing is, read the prophets, read the minor prophets, read the major prophets, read the apostles. There's criticism for immorality within the church. We don't. And I think that the, the ultimate answer is with these two groups, they're uh, they're you know speaking at each other. But they're both missing the point in some ways, because neither of them is speaking from a point of transcendence. Neither of them is speaking from a place where you can make a judgment other than, you know, my team, your team. What we have in the Bible, in the rich tradition of, of Christian history, and just common sense natural law, is the idea that, yes, we can critique society. We can say there are problems here. That we can, this is wrong. The government can be wrong. Go read Ambrose and, you know, confronting the emperor. Go read the prophets. Can, I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, and Nathan could confront him. We already have a rich tradition of this. We don't need to go to these outside sources to do so. Bring in what we already have there. Well, that, and that, that raises a good point, because I think what a lot of people will say is, well, the church hasn't done it. And I think 
to there and say, yeah, you're right. You're right. The church hasn't done it. Christians have failed. We we got caught up. I always tell students, you know, you, I think you said this already. It's hard to understand civil rights era unless you understand the Cold War, because the, the civil mm-hmm. rights movement comes with the backdrop of the devastations of communist revolutions that were, mm-hmm. you know, horrible by any human standard. So people get caught up and the church makes mistakes. And I think what happens for some people is they say, well, if the church makes mistakes and Christianity is not a viable way to make this, you know, to make this evaluation. And what you're saying is no, okay, so the same way that, that you know, Europe is not history, so the modern church is not Christianity. Mm-hmm. We've got the church right. in all ages doing these things that we can appeal to and see how they've done it. And mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think the, I think for many people, the critical theory is the one group willing to say, I think there's structural problems here and problems of power and culture. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it comes with this, and I like the way you've said it, because I think it comes with this, it brings as... Um, was it was it Taylor says this or um, William Vogelin? It, it brings the eschaton inside of history, and once the eschaton is moved inside of history, now you don't have salvation. All you have is warfare, right? I mean, you have to solve the mm-hmm. problem. It's retribution. It's not redemption. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. that's false gospel here, isn't it? Right. And yeah. I, I mean, I think that that's one of the great. Go ahead. No, Go I on. think I think too. What I when I'm listening to you, uh, Tim, I think what might be happening is on both sides of this whether it's um, sort of a Christian nationalism or a critical theory, when Christians hear some of these things, they might be hearing them through sort of Christian lenses. Like they're kind of hearing what they want to mm-hmm. hear. Um, yep. they're, they're saying, hey, yes, I, systemic problems or, you know, whatever, the, you know, or abortion. They're hearing, they're hearing all mm-hmm. these through this sort of these Christian ways and, I've said this in class. I, I agree with you 100%. Like, I don't need Foucault and Marcuse to tell me about oppression. Mm-hmm. I can read Amos and get that. Right. And yeah. and mm-hmm. so, but and I think I, I think what you guys are getting at is so maybe part of the problem is um, one is that okay, yes, we can we can overemphasize what America should be, right? Or we have mm-hmm. expectations. But maybe part of it is that the church has really never lived up to Galatians 3.28. It's always been a tension, right? That's why Paul had to write it. Mm-hmm. Um, that it, right. it, it's, it, we're always, it's an ideal that the city of, that's in the city of God, but in the city of man, even mm-hmm. the citizens of the city of God wrestle with it, trying to achieve yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I it, think it's that's- a constant tension. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead, yeah. Tim. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's a constant tension. I think that there is a, um, that both ends of the political spectrum, the social spectrum in this, they both are bringing in the eschaton. They're saying that we have arrived. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you see, I mean, you see that, I mean, I think from the conservative end of things, ironically, you see that from some of the post-millennial ideas of like late 19th century stuff, that we have a role. America is the one. Um, and they're, they're happy about it. This is the best means they have to ignore all sorts of problems that they have. Mm-hmm. And the people on the left, they're saying, we should be there already. Why aren't we there already? This imminentism um, and angry that it isn't there. So the one is happy that we are there. And the other is angry that we should be there and we're not there without realizing that, you know, I mean, the, one of my favorite Bible verses, in this world, you have trouble that I have overcome the world. Um, and I think that it's, it's realizing that we, we're not there yet. This is a failure of both. And to realize that that doesn't, it is not an opportunity for despair. I mean, that's a great temptation. When, 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 and I think that's, that's one of the problems that when people say, well, it's going to take a long time, they take that as an excuse. And often it is an excuse. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very often an excuse. Well, 
uh, you know, uh, I'll be well, you know, high and by in the sky kind of thing. It can be that, can be used that. But I think there's a great strength of uh, evangelicalism, the great strength of many of the reform efforts of the church is it recognizes that we're not there, that we're not ever going to get completely there in this world, but we can bit by bit by bit begin to make things, make all things new, to participate in that. Now, does eschatology play into that? Probably. I think the eschatological distinctions do play a big role here. Um, I think a fascinating paper would be how uh, people on the evangelical left, their use of eschatology and demonology. Because I, I don't I wonder what role th- that has in there because they have such an imminent view. I've just noticed that so many times the people in the evangelical left, when they talk about powers and principalities, they mean corporations and governments. They don't mean demons and whatnot. And so there, there is that, the, the ideas are really affecting, the theologies are really affecting their social interactions. That's good because I think what sometimes happens is when you say left and right, you say science and superstition and you say, well, the yeah. left is the left is trusting too much in science and the right a little too superstitious. Mm-hmm. But in fact, if you think of these as all as religious perspectives and worldviews, you can't say one of these is given mm-hmm. into science. It's it's a theory, it's a theorizing right. of reality, which is what we're all doing. It's mm-hmm. just a more leftist approach, mm-hmm. biased approach. Yeah, that's that's how in, in light of what I think we're seeing in the culture, even um, even we you had talked about the what Schaefer talked about the Christian consensus. I mean, we're now in a place mm-hmm. where the things that in some circles, the, the, the values that would have been normal or standard mm-hmm. uh, in the 50s or the 40s uh, are now mm-hmm. problematic and, and mm-hmm. oppressive. And so we can't even seem to agree as a society on the common good. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, a, it's a crazy time. Now let, let's do this. Let's let's spend the last little time together. And, and I know I, I mm-hmm. I've always say this: historians make bad prop make bad prophets, but we all are ministers of the gospel in some way. How do we kind of move forward mm-hmm. in some of this? I mean, how do we? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I heard someone recently say, you know, the the metal the middle is kind of shrinking, and everybody seems to be going mm-hmm. to the ends. But but how do we three historians who are ministers for the gospel, mm-hmm. who you know serve God in in uh, in, in ministry, parachurch ministry, campus ministry, whatever. How do we move forward? How do we help have this conversation? Do we just keep having these conversations? Like, what do we do? <laughs> oh, goodness. I mean, uh, it, it's one of those things where uh, I ever, it depends on the day as to what I want to do. Mm. Um, at, uh, I was a, a conference, a library conference a couple of years ago. And one of the guys from uh, the Boston library, uh, Dick Kyes, he was talking about, you kind of get the two options. You've got the, uh, the Benedict option, and you've got the William Wilberforce option. Um, now, in reality, those two options aren't nearly as contrasting, and he even admitted in his description, he was saying he's using those as rhetorical devices. But you've got the William Wilberforce option, which is engage, very much engage society, be at the, be a, get a seat at the table, get in positions of power to engage and things like that. Then you get the Benedict option, which as a stereotype, of it. I mean, Dreher's position isn't, isn't, isn't quite the stereotype of it, um, that hide away to some degree. There is that element, just focus on ourselves, we, and they can veer towards a pietism. Um, and then what's the, what's the reality? I mean, the, the reality is a bit of both. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's, it, we, we keep doing, I think, I think one of the, the key things we need to do is to realize that this is not the moment. This is our moment, but it's not the moment. And I think that's where eschatology, the role of eschatology in American theology, particularly the last hundred plus years, has been 
very important and not altogether healthy. Um, so many, you know, in, in the various academic studies that I have done, um, uh, like in the, the first book that I did, that came from my dissertation, eschatology was a big part of how they evaluated things. It wasn't an exclusive part. It's not as though um, they only saw things through an eschatological view, but very often, uh, not CT so much and not some of the others, but many of them, when they discussed issues, it was how does this fit with the end times? Because they were sure. They were so very sure. Part of that is ideological because of the influence of dispensationalism, stuff like that, a rising influence late 18th, sorry, late 19th century into the 20th century. And part of it was historical. When you had people talking about the effect of uh, uh, that, that the end was nigh, that it was about to happen, there was going to be this final war and the elemental fires and stuff like that, then all of a sudden this stuff kind of begins to happen. When, when you do have the state of Israel come to existence, it's kind of at least excusable, not understandable, that people would believe that. And I think that that has, has had such a role in, re, in the 20th century American theology, American ideology, to, that this was the moment. This was the moment that mattered. And I think that we have to realize that this is not the moment. This is our moment. Mm-hmm. Maybe the, Christ will come back tomorrow. Maybe Christ won't come back for 10,000 years. And we have to accept that. And I think that that's what part of what drives us to the, the frustration and the tension is that we're it's just in the background of our minds. Even those of us who are you know amillennial or whatever, we we that, that that this is the moment. God, the thing that happens now is the final curtain call for the end of human history. Whereas it might not be. A thousand years ago, people would have thought much the same thing in many ways. Right. I think that's one of the things we have to do. That this is not the moment. We have to realize. Take the big picture. It might not be the end. I do think that it means uh, a kind of a cautious engagement with society. Um, that that it means working in the moment where we are, but realizing this isn't about preserving America or not preserving America. It's about being faithful. It's about being faithful now in the situation to which God calls us. You think back 1,500 years, and you think about you know our equivalent, some monk or whatever. Who's, they're having a discussion about, oh, do you think the Visigoths are really going to this and such? Um, you know, they would have thought that everything was ending because it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, and then you think a couple hundred years later, you know, the, the, the Norsemen come down and terrorize and everything ends all over again. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, that, yeah, so I, I, if, if I'll come up with a, a short answer, it is realize yeah. that now it is, this is not the moment. We got to get away from the now. I really like that because I, um, I mm-hmm. find that very helpful because I think what one thing I've wrestled with students is one thing the modern period has done, it's, it's removed the transcendent and confused it with history. So history is now mm-hmm. the, the engine, the agent of everything that has to happen. So we pour all of our mm-hmm. into that basket and it, and it creates tremendous 20th century anxiety. I think mean, World War I and World War II, mm-hmm. product of that anxiety in some degree or another. Darwinism in the background, mm-hmm. Hegel in the background, all of that mm-hmm. today. But it's funny that you say that myself as a Christian, I can get very easily tied up in that and think, yeah, if I don't get mm-hmm. this right right now, you know, to, to forget that history is not the transcendent truth. It's the transcendent truth is Christ, mm-hmm. which is absolutely certain. The tell us of history, as I tell students and then have trouble time, tough time believing it, the tell us of history is more real than history itself. <laughs> but that's, mm-hmm. that's not how we've been trained to think. I think the pre-moderns understood that. I don't think moderns understand that. Mm-hmm. They struggle with that. But I still would enjoy mm-hmm. reading. I'm now curious. I would enjoy reading a book on critical millennialism. You know, the, <laughs> it's coming out. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it's funny when you said that, Tim. When you talked about that, I mean, I, I read mm-hmm. a book years ago. There was there's there's a theory of 
of of secular human or secular millennialism. Uh, there was a chapter yeah. on Marxist millennialism. There was one even on UFO millennialism. Right. I mean, there you've mm-hmm. all these sort of utopias that get created. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I go back to at some point it seems like the church, the body of Christ, has to have some conversations and work through some of this because. If our African-American brothers and sisters are clamoring for something and are feeling a certain angst, um, mm-hmm. and that's, that's a difficulty that I think we need to wrestle with. And it's not just mm-hmm. more Christian nationalism. Um, right. Yeah, so. yeah I, mean, I think the, the utopianism is a key, particularly in the Anglo-Americans. Utopianism coming out of you know, Massachusetts Bay ideology. That's a key element in what makes us what we do, both left and right. Yeah. And you think about so much of the discussion about justice and things like that. You, you look at what, what do African-Americans and Anglo-Americans preach about? They preach about very different things. Yeah. They do. Very different things. They do. They do. Yeah. Well, Tim, mm-hmm. this has been great. I enjoyed this. I could go on longer. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the listeners could, uh, but I could sit around and talk with you guys about this and uh, yeah. for hours. So thank you so much. Um, I've enjoyed uh, the book, reading it. Um, Just plug that again, Tim. Plug that again, Tim. Yeah. I'm sorry, what? Oh, yeah. Dual Citizens, Politics and American Evangelicalism, a study of Christianity Day articles from 1956 to 2016. And one thing I've been an analysis of. Um, go ahead. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought you were done, Tim. All, all I meant to say is I, for the listeners, I think what you're hearing out of Dr. Padgett here is just sobriety, <laughs> sobriety, wisdom, thoughtfulness, not, not, a, not a willingness to explain away things that are bad or wrong. But and I think this is what I long for in this culture is a space where we can actually have rational conversations, think things through, be self-critical, be repentant, but also be hopeful. And um, I, I appreciate you doing that. So so enjoy this lecture, this discussion, then go get Dr. Padgett's book. And remember, it's a group of historians and they all kind of look at the world in a certain way. So uh, yeah, <laughs> for they, sure. do. they do. Well, Tim, thank you so much, pal. I enjoyed this. Thank, thank you. you. It was happy to, I'm very happy to come on. for spending time with us and listening to this podcast. We hope that it has helped you negotiate living in the city of man. Be sure to check out our website, unlikelypilgrims.com, where you can find blogs, book recommendations, podcasts, and vlogs. You can also check us out at Facebook at unlikelypilgrims.com. You can follow us on Twitter at unlikelypilgrims at the city of God.